0: Hello and welcome to Positive Spark Plug. I'm your host, Candace, and I am so excited for you to be joining me today. For I have a phenomenal man on the episode he is a man of leadership he is a man of communication and he is just an all-around great guy and I'm so excited for you guys to be able to tune in to all of his information knowledge wisdom insights and inspiration because he is just incredible Mm -hmm. so in joy hi Rod how are you
1: Hi Candice, I'm very well. Thank you. I'm I'm really happy to be here today.
2: Um, I'm so excited to have you on my podcast. Um I learned first about you um when I volunteered for a CanFit Pro, um, but then really learned more about you when I um started connecting more with Blake, one of my mentors, who you mentor. Um, and then I joined uh, your Healthy, Wealthy and Wise program and now we're here. Um, but I want to share you with the world. I want to share you with my listeners because you have a background of so much knowledge and wisdom and insights and uh, I want to help get that out to the world. Um, my first question um, right now during these kind of rough times, just to have some fun, is what three emojis best describe you right now let's just start with some fun
1: okay so um I guess if I if I think about the different emojis that I use most often um one would be the um the raised eyebrow sort of (laughs) emoji you know like a hmm you know kind of
3: thing
1: um and uh the but that one probably that's probably the second or third one that I use most the The one I use most is is the the thank you hands class like that um and the heart. so those right. are probably the three that I use most and that i um uh that probably reflect me the most in terms of music.
2: Oh, that's awesome, awesome. yeah, I just like starting with my listeners being all that we're going through. I just like starting off with some fun. Um, so speaking of CanFit, um, that's how I got to know you, but I want to go a little bit further back. How did you manage to get into CanFit? I have done some research. I see you're an Ironman. I see you do multiple sports. Um, you cross Canada, cycled, um, was all of this part of your journey to get into the fitness industry? Um, or how did that come about?
1: Well, uh I can give you the the sort of uh, let's call it the nutshell version of the whole story and then if you okay. want to dig into anything in particular then you can. So Perfect. um I'm gonna go really way back to say that when I was about maybe twelve or thirteen years old, um I lived in Montreal, it's where I grew up, and we lived in a duplex in NDG, which is a very um, sort of lower middle income uh, neighborhood, very diverse in terms of the people that live in that neighborhood. And uh, our landlord uh, lived on the first floor and we lived on the second floor. And uh, the basement was kind of shared, you know, like we had a, a washing machine and, and stuff like that. Okay. The landlord's son had a, a Joe Weeder weight set dumbbells and a barbell and uh and he invited me to work out one day or at least just to lift the weight and i remember that day as if it was yesterday of putting my hands on the barbell feeling the weight of it and standing up with it so basically i did basically a deadlift even though my form was probably terrible at the time (laughs) and uh and I, and I, I love that feeling at that age, you know, cause 12, 13 for a boy, you know, you're starting to get stronger and your body's changing. Yeah. And yeah. I love that sense of, of sort of expressing my, my physical strength. <clears throat> and that was probably my, okay. my first sort of opportunity to sort of get to be exposed to weight training. And I okay. had, um, my landlord's uh son had, and he was, he was older than me. He was probably about 18 at the time. And he had the different Joe Weeder posters up with all the exercises and which if you look at them today, some of those exercises are ridiculous. Like there's one where you would have to go into a neck bridge, like from wrestling, where you lie on your back and you put your head on the ground and then you lift your body up all the weights on your head and then you do (laughs) a a bench press from that position.
3: Like there's some
1: crazy exercises because when those Posters were originally created, which would have been back in the 50s, probably. Um, they didn't have the same kind of equipment that, you know, we, we had in the 80s or had, you know, now in the 2000s. So in any case, um, that was the, that was the first experience. Fast forward about four or five years to when I was about 16, maybe 15 or 16. Um, I was going to the YMCA. Uh, I was actually doing karate classes. And at the end of the karate classes, we noticed that the black belts would always go down to the weight room after class. And so okay. myself and a couple of my friends that were uh, doing karate, we would kind of follow them because we looked up to them and yes. we would watch what they would do and then we would follow along. And then after they left the station, we would go and work out doing, pretending to do the same things.
3: Same thing. So,
1: yeah. And a uh, little while after that, I was working out at a, at a different YMCA and there was a really cute girl at the front desk. And, <laughs> um, and she said to me, you know, if you volunteer in the weight room, you get a free membership. Oh. And, and, and I add in that she's a cute girl because she ended up being my girlfriend for a little while. And, um,
3: <laughs> nice.
1: Yeah. So, um, so I started volunteering. So I went from working out then volunteering and what that meant at the time was you know wiping down the equipment and you know sweeping up and uh, and then after a little while you could actually give people an orientation to the whole weight room and where everything was located and Very if you cool. went through yeah and, and then if you went through the ymca fit certification then you could start giving programs um, wow. more again more as an orientation not so much personal training just to sort of, hey, here's all the equipment, here's a program, go get started. Nice.
3: Yeah.
1: And I love that experience. Uh, I loved helping people. I loved, um, guiding them along the way. And even though I didn't realize at the time, that was sort of my first sort of semi exposure to personal training. And not long after that, probably, uh, I was 19 or 20 or so. They um needed somebody to help out teaching the FIT certification. And so I volunteered to, to help with that. And I love teaching as well. So not only in the weight room, but also in the classroom. And the combination of the two, they also started doing personal training at that point. This would have been in the late nineties or so. Um, and they, um so I became a personal trainer I was teaching part of the FIT class. I was working as a personal trainer. And then eventually uh, the weight room coordinator went on mat leave, and I put up my hand. I said, well, I'll can I cover while she's gone? And yeah. I shared that time with another trainer, uh, and we just supervised the weight room. That was sort of my an early introduction to sort of management and leadership. Um, and, uh, and it was a good job and it was fun in the environment that I wanted to, to be in. And sort of fast forward again a number of years. Yep.
3: Um,
1: you know, it was, it was that early experience of strength training and being in that environment that sort of really gave me that passion for fitness and exercise. Fitness. Um, and teaching the FIT course certainly. Uh, it became a passion of mine. I had a little bit of a detour where I, I moved to Toronto for a few years. Um, and I did a bunch of different jobs. One of those was actually was working at a gym. Uh, and then I came back to Montreal in the late nineties and went back to school, uh, at McGill in what used to be called fitness education. Um, part okay. Of the Zed department. Uh, now they call it kinesiology and fitness education. Oh, yep. Yeah. And, Uh, when I came back to Montreal, I ended up working again at the the same YMCA as the weight room coordinator full-time and headed up, uh, the whole personal training department. So we actually built up at that point, built up the personal training team to be, I think we had 15 or 20 personal trainers and, uh, it was a a really successful program. So I, I had a lot of, and I was also teaching the FIT program. That was my first intro- introduction around that time to CanFit Pro because CanFit Pro had launched the PTS certification. And uh, I was one of the first PTS Pro trainers when that program was launched. And um, I guess it was 90, that would have been around 98 or 99, uh, May, uh, 98, 99 around there. And uh, that was also my first introduction to the CanFit Pro conference. So I attended the conference as a delegate Um, I had, uh, become a pro trainer shortly around that time or shortly thereafter. And, um, I loved everything about CanFit Pro. And, um, I went back to Montreal because I was still living in Montreal at the time. I applied to be a presenter and, uh, got in to present eventually at the Montreal Conference in the early years of that one. And then in the year 2000, I was invited to present at the Toronto Conference. And that was that was huge. You know I mean?
3: Yeah. A big international Massive.
1: conference. Yeah. So uh that that was two thousand, still living in Montreal. Um and then and uh in two thousand two uh the position of general manager opened up at Hanford Grove. And uh I talked to my wife at the time and I said, you know, there's not that many higher level jobs in the fitness industry. I have my management experience now from the YMCA for several years. Uh, yeah. would you be willing to move to Toronto? And um and she said no. I convinced <laughs> her. Um and so in two thousand two uh we moved to uh to Toronto. And um and so I started out as general manager at CanFit Pro and over the years went from general manager to executive director and then eventually vice president.
2: Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um there's so much from that that I'm I'm wanting to dive into. So with with all that um you did within that journey, it seemed like leadership was either something that you thrust yourself upon or it seemed to follow you wherever you went. Um How do you find um, is best for someone um, that is wanting to take in a leadership role or maybe um, is been given the opportunity for a leadership role? Um, what are some best things for somebody to to do and and take in and utilize?
1: well I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more of a story to to prepare to answer that question. so okay uh, as a child. I was very shy. I was very introverted and shy. And I was the kid that, you know, when my mom would take me and my brother to, you know, get new clothes or whatever, I would like hide behind her leg. Um, I didn't want to talk to the salesperson. I didn't want to try anything on. I was just really, really shy. And uh, I was so shy that if the, if the phone rang at the house, I didn't want to answer the phone. Uh, okay. And even if my mom answered the phone and it was like a family member, like an aunt or an uncle, I still didn't want to talk to them. I was so shy. And then something happened when I was a teenager that changed everything for me. And at that time, this is way before your time because I'm (laughs) I'm a lot older than you are. (laughs) Um, At that time, it was the mid to, yeah, about mid 80s, so about 1984. 85, 86, and uh, Corey Hart was really popular, Brian Adams, um, you know, and uh, Bruce Springsteen and so on, and Corey Hart was a Montreal boy who kind of made it semi-big in the, at least the Canadian kind of somewhat international music scene, and he had short, spiky hair, and so I styled my hair that way, and then our high school ran a lip-syncing contest. And, uh, and somebody, I don't know how they did it, but they talked me into entering the contest as Corey Hart, you know, to lip sync a Corey Hart song. Nice. And And uh, I was terrified. I remember being on that stage before the curtain went up. This was a big high school, so it was a big auditorium with, like, seating for 700 people. And I was on the stage and everything. The curtain went up, and I, and I had started with my back to the audience. Just on purpose, sort of the way the song started, and I was I was physically shaking, like I was trembling because I was okay. so nervous. I could barely breathe, and I and then I just did it, and I went through the song, you know, practiced a million times in front of the mirror or whatever mm-hmm. before that, <laughs> and at the end of it, I got a huge standing ovation from everybody. Um oh, good And uh, and that that was sort of the tipping point for me to go from really shy to actually wanting to be on a stage and to speak or present or whatever. So I was about 15 or 16 at the time. And so at that point forward, I anytime there was a class project, a group project, and somebody had to stand up and present the information, um, I would always volunteer to do that. So it was a real sort of 180 degree change from being really shy to being, yes. I wouldn't say outgoing, but definitely like, uh, confident. Yep. Yeah. And coming back to your question about leadership, um, a lot of leadership is about not just doing something really well, but being able to inspire other people to be their best. And uh, and that ability to stand up in front of a group, or in that case, an auditorium full of people, um, with, at, although at the time, not a lot of sense of authority, but eventually over time building that up, to be able to stand up in front of a group and speak with confidence and to convey an idea with confidence uh, is a big part of leadership. Because if there are people watching and listening and they don't believe that you believe, and what you're talking about then then your connection your rapport will just dissolve so dissolve. um so that was sort of my path into into leadership so to to answer your question even more specifically um to to, to be a a strong leader you have to be able to communicate
3: yeah.
1: and if you're not able to take your ideas and formulate them in a way that is organized and easy to understand, then it's almost impossible to lead unless you do the easy thing which is to lead with power rather than influence. And when you lead with power you yell at people and you demand things and you know, threaten, and when you lead more with influence, then you're working with people for people and you're you're serving them as the leader rather than waiting for them to serve you.
2: Yes, that's amazing. I also, I love that. And I also kind of got an underlying message, um, in there as well. It sounds like as a leader, it's, it's very key for you to, to do the things that are making you afraid or nervous or, maybe terrifying because you're not sure of the outcome or you're putting a lot of stuff on the line if doing so. Um, It sounds like you're saying find those spots and purposely try and put yourself there because that's what's going to allow you to shine but also allow others around you and your team to shine. Am Am I correct?
1: Absolutely and in fact one of my favorite quotes which I've never actually been able to attribute it in in this wording. I've never been able to figure out who said it. So maybe I did. I don't know. But um, it's uh, courage is not the absence of fear. It's taking action in the presence of fear. Yes. And, you know, we all get scared from time to time about something. Whether it's, you know, standing in front of a group of people and Mm -hmm. doing a talk. Or, uh, you know, creating your own business or making a sale or being on a podcast, right? Um, you know, there's, there's lots of things that can create fear and, and that fear, the way I like to look at it is it's just energy, right? And, and the fear that's coming up is your nervous system actually trying to protect you from a a false reality of danger. And most of the time, there isn't any real danger, you know, in the developed world and workplace environments and so on. Um, It's just what what our brains and our hearts imagine to be scary. And if we can acknowledge that and move forward anyway, then that's courageous.
2: Yes. So speaking, keeping on with leadership and fitness, you skyrocketed in the CanFit Pro industry, becoming the executive. Um, how, how was it managing such a big team? Cause CanFit is all Canada, correct?
1: So when I started out at CanFit Pro in 2002 as the general manager, we had, if memory serves, we had around, um, 5,000 or 6,000 members. And wow. Uh, we had about maybe eight staff working at the office Uh, and over the course of the 15 years that I was there, um, our staff had to grow to serve the increasing number of members and events that we put on. So our staff got up to about 60 to 70 people from uh, different times. And we had, uh, upwards of about 24, 25,000 professional members. And overall, about a hundred thousand contacts that that we were communicating with.
2: That's insane. So with with leadership comes coaching. How how do you how do you coach a team that big? How like how what strategies do you do you need to implement in order to run something that successful that that wide?
1: Well, you know um, it's a good question. And I would have to first and foremost, uh, give credit to the other people that I work with because over the years we added additional roles and with those roles, uh, we added teams. And so as a business grows, you have to add more people if you want it to grow because one person just can't do everything, uh, forever and certainly not to that size of, of organization and that much reach as we had. And so we had some really phenomenal people that, uh, that worked with us and, uh, did a really good job because I couldn't ever have done it on my own. So I give them, I give them, you know, all the credit because they, um, they made everything happen. And if I helped, you know, if I led in a way that allowed them to be as awesome as they were, then, then that's nice. But, but, you know, there's a lot of really strong people there
2: awesome you just you you just showed another extreme quality of leadership where um i read it and i believe it's jocko willick's book um extreme ownership
3: Great book.
2: um where he it, it it is and you just you just expressed that where you you literally just took the success that you are in part of and just gave it to your team which is so amazing but i also know you as a man that when something is going wrong, you take ownership. And that just, that, that just what popped in my head with you, with you saying that. Um, so coming with coaching, um, and to keep the conversation going to stay with time, you, are you the, you're the CEO of the Certified Coaches Federation. Did that come about with CanFit Pro, out of CanFit Pro, or how did that come about as well?
1: So, um, while I was at CanFit Pro, we had formed a relationship with the Certified Coaches Federation, uh, okay. where we were delivering the level one certified coach practitioner training through CanFit Pro to people in the fitness industry, um, either at the CanFit Pro Academy or at other locations, uh, wherever we were, usually in conjunction with events and, um, I was teaching the course some of the time and we had some other people teaching it. And so we had a good relationship with CCF for a few years. Um, and then, uh, when I was no longer with CanFit Pro, Derek, the founder of CCF and Healthy, Wealthy and Wise, um, you know, reached out to me and said, Hey, why don't you come over here and, uh, we'll make you CEO here. So that was, it was a great fit because, you know, I think that the opportunity that Derek gave me, uh, was, was so perfect because the trajectory of where CCF was at, uh, was reminded me a lot of where, where CanFit Pro was back in the early 2000s. And so I wanted to, to help build CCF in the same way that, um, that I helped, uh, contribute to the growth of CanFit Pro.
2: And you certainly have. I just I see it expanding like crazy. Um, within your course, um, well, within the certification of the certified coaching, um, what are a couple of the fundamental um factors that a coach needs in order to be a great coach for whoever they come in contact with?
1: So good question. So. As it relates to coaching, it's actually very similar to the questions you're asking about leadership. So being a really strong communicator is really critical because if you as a coach can't communicate, and primarily that's through empowering questions, then it'll be very difficult for you to uh, inspire your client to be their best. And the presumption of coaching is that the client has the answer and they just can't access it yet and so if we ask really powerful uh, questions then the client should be able to break through those uh, blockages and get to the answer and formulate a plan to succeed so that's part of what we focus on is the actual process and so in our level one certified coach practitioner we teach people the step-by-step process for how to take somebody from just meeting them to discovering some of their deepest, most powerful or disempowering beliefs so that we can reorganize those things and then give them a tool that allows them to recondition their subconscious mind so that they can actually put their success into autopilot. And uh, it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. And so to your question of what coaches or what somebody who wants to get into coaching might need to know or the skills, Uh, It's certainly understanding that the subconscious mind is so powerful and so important to our success, and then knowing how to work with the subconscious mind to um, to program uh, our own sort of operating system so that we can get more of what we want.
2: So are there like, what... What kind of characteristic traits? Because a lot of coaching to clients, um, it, it has to come with a, a rapport. It has to come with, they want to know how much you care about them. That comes with communication. But what other characteristics should a coach really try and, and dive deep in within themselves to, to help connect a strong, um, relationship with, with their clients?
1: So communication overall would be the most important. And that includes, First and foremost, being an empathetic listener. Okay. So knowing when to completely, you know, close your mouth and open your ears um, to listen to what the client is saying. But a close second to that is how to know when to step in and even make the client stop talking so that you can actually get to the work that's necessary. Because oftentimes clients have a story that they like to tell that they've probably told to a lot of people over many years about what's held them back and who's to blame and why they can't do this and why they don't want that. And part of our role of a, of a coach is to listen for and watch out for some of that language so that we can have the client, the, the client pause and then have them shift to something that's more useful. So one of the things I'll often do with clients is I'll let them vent about something and okay. my follow-up question will be, so now what do you want to do about it?
3: Oh, I like that.
1: Because it's, it's one thing to talk about it. And there's a lot of value in talking about it to just get it out and to articulate it. But if you don't go the next step, then you're basically, you know, having a coffee date with a client. And you're not really being a coach. I like that.
3: I like that.
2: What are you going to do about it? I like that. Um. So with... With both your uh, coaching federation and CanFit, you have done a lot of speaking.
3: Yes.
2: Um, personally, one-on-ones and small groups to thousands of people. Um, what is what is it like um, to to a get involved deeply with just a small group, but then also and, and be present with a small group, but also channel that energy and be fully present with thousands of people listening to you. How do you prepare for both? Or is it the same? Is it?
1: So I guess there's, there are different, there are different types of speaking engagements. Uh, okay. There are things that are somewhat easy to do, like getting on a stage and introducing somebody else. So yes, you're on a stage in front of, you know, hundreds or thousands of people. And so if all you're doing is reading, say, a biography and then introducing somebody, that's pretty straightforward. It can still be nerve wracking if you're not ready for it. Uh And that's everything from not ready for what you're going to say, or if you're not ready for, you know, the the where the microphone is, if it's on you or in front of you, the lights, the reverberation of the sound. You know, when you talk on a big stage in front of thousands of people, the sound usually bounces back to you. And so... Uh, you you hear yourself speaking, but then you also hear the sound coming back and you have to be able to manage that.
3: Manage that, yeah.
1: Um, And in some cases, not even be able to see because the lights are so bright. So there are people, you know, 20 feet in front of you, but you you might be able to see the first couple rows, but then you can't see maybe beyond that. Um, I mean, I've spoken in front of, literally in in front of one person. So I I had a, a session... In Miami, Florida, I was speaking at the World Spinning Sport Conditioning Conference and one person showed up to one of my sessions and, um, and I gave them the option. I said, you know, would you like to go to another session or do you yeah. want to stay and, and, and I'll be your one on one speaker today. And she wanted to stay. So I gave her, you know, probably the best one on one talk that, uh, she had ever, uh, experienced because that session was actually about how to prepare for and ride your bike across the continent. And, um, and that was, that was a goal of hers. So she was there because she wanted to do that. Um, yep. so I've spoken mm-hmm. to everybody from, from one person all the way up to about 5,000. And, uh, really it's just being clear about what you want to accomplish in that time, in that space with those people and being prepared enough to do it. And being prepared enough to just, in a sense, kind of swallow your fear. Because when you're about to get on a stage, in some cases, I've actually seen people throw up before they go on stage. <laughs> um, because they're so <laughs> nervous. So in that case, they're barfing out their fear. Um, and in other cases, just sort of like gulping it down and saying, okay, I'm going to do it. And, um, and that allows you to get going with it. Wow. That's
2: exciting. Um, you're a man of like many things, because not only like speaking, coaching can fit, you're also an author. So I want to get to that because I also um, was a co-author in the Little Red Book with Gary Viska. I'm wanting to write my own book called POP, Perspectives on Positivity. Um, but I want to get your insights. Um, what What is it that an author needs to know um, to produce a book that is going to give all of the readers high quality um, information, insights and inspiration um, when it comes to like personal growth and development, because that's what my book is going to be about.
1: Okay, so um, do you want a coaching session right now? Is that what you're asking for?
2: (laughs) If you would love to give me one, sure.
1: (laughs) Okay, so uh, let me ask you this. Um, Okay. Do you feel confident about the topic that you wanna write about? Yes. Okay. And uh, do you feel like you have the enough content to create, or you could create enough content to create a whole book? Yes. Okay. Oh yeah. And do you have the structure already laid out in terms of what you wanna have happen first and second and third, in terms of how you wanna lay out the book?
2: That is where I get stuck and I come up with one idea and then I'm like, I don't know about it. And then I come up with another idea and I don't know about it. So that's where I get stuck on how to format it.
1: Okay. So I'm going to give you a a really quick way that you can navigate through that. Um, Perfect. I've used this myself and I've used it not only for writing, but also for creating presentations. And I've used it with, with coaching clients that also want to create something, whether, again, it's a presentation or a book or whatnot. So it's a really easy technique um, that you take either post-it notes or little scraps of paper and you write out on these scraps of paper all the different separate ideas that you have and you lay them out on your kitchen table or dining room table or your floor and you lay them all out and hopefully you're going to end up with 50 to 150 maybe even 200 different ideas and and it can be anything from just a thought to a topic to a challenge to a question just anything that comes to mind and it's that whole process of getting them onto these scraps of paper is a type of brainstorming because a book uh from cover to cover is a linear experience right that you start on page one and you don't go from page one to page 77 unless you're in one of those old like choose your own adventure books that you're <laughs> your kids right so a typical yeah. book you go from you know sentence one to sentence two page one to page two and so on but the but the brain doesn't typically work in a linear fashion and so you have all this great I- idea all these great ideas about what you want to write about and you think okay well how do i put it into this linear format And the way to do that, in my experience, is you allow your brain to to dump everything out, you lay all of those ideas out, you step back from those ideas and take a look to see where things start to group together. And those probably will be the bigger sections of your book. And then within those sections, you'll start to see things that you can move, move around the pieces of paper to group them together to be what will probably be the chapters of your book, and then even some of the paragraphs within those chapters of your book. And then you walk away from it, and you let it kind of sit, and if you have animals in the house, I think you have dogs, right? Yes. So, you got to make sure they can't like jump up on the table or walk on the <laughs> floor if you have it on the floor. And along the way, take pictures, use your smartphone and take pictures in case you change things and you want to go back to it, take pictures okay. of it. Okay. And then come back to it at least a few hours later, if not maybe the next day, and see if anything changes, because your brain is processing all of this stuff at a subconscious level. Get it all organized, and then take that and put it into what would be the linear, um, you know, path of the book. So oh. what you're doing is you're harnessing the nonlinear aspect of the brain to dump it all out, and yep. then you're starting to let it move together somewhat at a subconscious level and then you put it into that linear fashion from start to finish and then you can start massaging a little bit and then you'll have your your book
3: oh that's amazing so and i'm definitely going to do that
1: so that's that's sort of the creative aspect of it the other piece which is usually even more challenging for people is finding the time to sit down and be committed to the actual writing I know a lot of people who have outlines for books. So they've gotten to the point that they have, well, I know I'm going to have 12 chapters and these are going to be the headings of those chapters. And I even have an idea what's going to be in there, but they've had that outline for 10 years or 20 years. And so, uh, it's really important, just like fitness or date night or whatever it is, you have to schedule it in and know that you're going to give yourself the time, whether it's every day or every week, uh, the commitment to that, so that you can get the the content written.
2: Oh, that's that's amazing. Thank you for that. Sure. I am definitely going to be doing that. That's perfect. Cause yeah, I I have um I have my I have most of my content. Um, a part of my book is going to be through my podcast. Um, because my final question, which I'll get to, um, is where I'm going to be pulling my some of my book chapters and and content from um so what you just gave me is phenomenal because I'm like I don't know where to put all of this um so thank you and to any of my my listeners that are wanting to write a book grab a hold of that knowledge write it down and do it um so to keep going um you just talked about uh uh, co-op like writing um I want to kind of bring the topic into kind of what we're going through right now. Um how would you channel your mind um to to face fear with all that's happening right now? How do you how do you construct your mind to to conquer fear right now? With that really kind of being at the forefront of a lot of people's mind, emotions, and body.
1: So it's a great question. Obviously, a timely question because we're right in the, you know, I don't know if we're in the beginning or the middle or the end of this COVID-19 crisis. Um, but here's what I would do first and foremost, which is to pay attention to what you're thinking about and how you're spending your time. Because whether it was on the early days of this where people were, everything was kind of normal, but we were hearing some of the early news reports and, and so on before everything got locked down. Yeah. Um, there was a, a, this raising level of anxiety very sort of yeah. gradually seeping up. It's almost like a leak in the basement that sort of gradually goes up, you know, millimeter by millimeter, um, yeah. as anxiety. And early on, a lot of people. We're just, you know, consuming every news source and every source of information possible. And it's too much, you know, yes. the, brain, the brain just can't process all of that information in a useful way. And so, uh, two things. Number one, limit the source of in, of information and the amount of time you put to acquiring those sources of information. We do need to be informed to know what's happening. But we don't yeah. want to know minute by minute, hour by hour, every single day. So it might be a strategy of, you know, watching the news for 15 minutes, once a day, just to know if there's anything new that's going on, uh, not right. to spend too much time researching or reading, because there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there now about where this came from and where it's going. And are we all going to have like computer chips inserted in us and forced vaccines and things like that. And a lot of that is is speculation and rumor and is not founded in science or reality. So what I would suggest is certainly limiting what's coming in because the nervous system can only handle so much information. And a a perfect sort of silly example of that is if you've ever been uh, driving somewhere that you weren't familiar with, you know, you were going to somebody's house or going to a business and you've never been in that neighborhood. You know, you usually, what do you usually do? You slow down, right? And you look forward. And it's funny because we drive like this all the time. And then when we're looking for something, we move our head forward like four inches (laughs) as if that's going to give us like supervision or something.
2: And we turn down the volume.
1: And we turn down the volume, (laughs) right? And the reason we turn down the volume is because there's too much data coming into our nervous system And our brains can't process it, even if it's passive, like a song or something that's playing, or if somebody's talking next to us, it's just too much information coming in, too much stimulus. And so what do we do? We tell the person to shut up, we turn down (laughs) the radio, and we lean forward four inches (laughs) to be able to magically see everything all of a sudden. And and we get to a point, hopefully, where we can process the information that's coming in. And so just like that, um, with this crisis that we're going through is to limit the amount of stimulus coming in so that we don't get overwhelmed. And I think the language is also important. So, um, I've heard a lot of people and seen a lot of people on social media say, you know, these are crazy times or everybody's going nuts or whatever the case may be. And I I haven't seen that myself, but I, uh, I haven't seen people going crazy but i i hear people talking about it as if it's happening as if we're yeah. in the beginning of world war z or something like that
3: <laughs> and, yeah.
1: and so i've chosen to tweak my language to say we're in really interesting times
3: uh, okay they're
1: so not crazy just interesting and what that does is it doesn't it doesn't eliminate the acknowledgement that we're in a certain space and time dealing with this it also doesn't over exaggerate it so like another that. one of my favorite quotes is to see things not better than they are not worse than they are but just as they are oh i like that and uh and that that sort of hits reset for us to not to overthink it not to underthink it but just to observe it as it is and uh that helps a lot
2: um to, to keep with the language and communication, um, because that seems to be key in, in this whole episode that we have had, um, and this conversation that we've had, what is, what is extremely necessary for somebody to have, um, the proper language within themselves, but, but also with the ones that they are stuck with, or they're, they're constantly around. Um, how, how important is that? And and what can somebody do to help make it positive?
1: Well, I think, uh, certainly. And I'm going to call you out on something that you said there. So, okay. um, and you said, you know, for the people that we're stuck with. Oh, right? you. <laughs> and, and. and to, to to verbalize it that way suggests that it's something, A, that you don't want and that you're not enjoying. It. <laughs>
3: okay, yeah, that's...
1: When you're stuck with something, it suggests that it was kind of forced on you. And this is kind of forced on us. But um, if if you change that to, um, you know, the people that we have, that we're with, right? That would be the most neutral. Say the, that I'm with these people. I'm with my family members. Um, or that I have the opportunity to spend time with, you know, Okay. that changes the energy of how you actually process it and how you feel about it, you know? And uh, so I would, I would say that, uh, and this is actually true across the board before, during, and after the situation that our own self-awareness is the most important thing. We can't control what's going on with somebody else. Whether it's our spouse or children, parents, you know, they're going to think and feel whatever they're going to think and feel. We may have some influence, but we can't control it. And so what we can do is, um, influence ourselves most. And at that point, if we're, uh, if we're showing up calm, in control, and we're dealing with things as they come up, we're preparing where we need to we're responding how we need to, we're not freaking out, then that creates a context for everybody else within, let's say, the house or the home or the apartment or wherever we find ourselves. If we're walking around like crazy because we've been watching like 18 hours of social media and CNN and Fox and whatever else somebody might be consuming, well, that creates tension in the home. And we've all had an experience where whether it's you know walking into an office or walking into our home and we can almost feel the tension you know where somebody's in a bad mood or there yeah. was just an argument but the argument ended but you're walking in you're like whoa what's what's going on here so we actually oh, wow. have this very subtle uh, energy that we pick up on and so first and foremost we have to control ourselves we have to be self-aware of how we're showing up and then if we have somebody that is particularly susceptible to anxiety, to stress, then we want to do whatever we can to reduce that stress. And we know, you and I know, and most of the people that listen to your podcast know that uh, exercise and good nutrition are two of the most important things. And yes. so just simply saying, why don't we go for a walk?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Or even just let's go sit out on our front step. You know, let's be in the sun. And breathe mm-hmm. some fresh air, that makes a huge difference. Even though it's very subtle, and and we're not saying anything to them other than let's just go and go for a walk. When you come back, yep. guaranteed you're going to feel better.
2: Yes, I like that. Um. So what um what are some things that people can be doing right now? Like you were saying, some walks. But what are some like actual um like mental activities or strategies that somebody can do right now to kind of help relax their mind a bit if if they're all of a sudden feeling that anxiousness or that anxiety coming up.
1: So, one of my favorite and most easy things to do is just simple distraction.
2: Okay. And so
1: um I I like laughing, and so one of the things yeah. I like to do for distraction is to watch something on TV that's funny. So whether that's a funny movie or a funny TV show, if my brain is focused in this direction and then I can, in a sense, sit down to the TV and force it over here and that makes me laugh and whatever, I'll get relief for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, whatever the case may be. You just have to be careful not to overdo it, right? Okay. um and it's and with things like Netflix and Amazon Prime it's easy to go from episode to episode and then all of a sudden you're like well 14 hours later of Netflix and you haven't actually slept so yeah if if your brain is occupied by what's going on in the news give it something else to be occupied by so i like the the humor because it actually stimulates the vagus nerve it actually reduces blood pressure it increases blood flow to the brain um, it's just like deep breathing when you laugh because it actually vibrates the, the vagus nerve. So, uh, so the distraction's really good. Um, and then if you can distract with something positive, so that's kind of an yep. easy thing, right? Cause it's passive. You can just sit down in front of the TV. If you can, uh, distract with something positive and be more active with it. So certainly, you know, exercise or good nutrition or just simply deep breathing, uh, will make okay. a massive difference with it. In fact, I was talking to a client yesterday and uh she was a former smoker and a cancer survivor and she told wow. me that in this time she's so stressed out that she started smoking again. And I asked her we to to sort of abbreviate this version of it for us. Um yep. I asked her to describe what she does when she smokes and she said, "Well, I, you know, go outside, I, you know, light up and I smoke my cigarette or two." And then I feel better and then I come back inside. I said, okay, so now what I want you, I want you to pretend you have a cigarette in your hand or in your mouth and I want you to inhale and exhale like you are smoking a cigarette. And I could hear her because we were on the phone, could hear her doing it. Yep. And then she went quiet. She said, oh my God, I feel so much better. And the reality is that people get used to going and smoking because what do they do? They go outside, they get fresh air, uh, in, in addition to the smoke they're inhaling, but they get fresh air. They get movement because they get up off their backside. They walk outside as opposed yep. to being at their desk all day and they're forced to <sighs> do a big breath in multiple times. So I said, why don't you just do that without the cigarette? You know, yes. go outside and breathe deeply for five minutes and uh, and you'll have a, a, transform- a transformative experience. So that's, it's, it, it's really, really important for two reasons. One, when we get stuck either at our desk or in front of the TV, we breathe really shallow, right? It's yeah. almost, it's almost all at the top of our lungs, which is, as we know from a physiological perspective, we don't have a lot of density of our alveoli at the top of the lungs. And so we're not actually extracting as much oxygen when we're breathing shallow. But when we breathe deep where the alveoli is quite rich, then we're actually able to get more air in and extract more of that oxygen and bring it to the rest of the body so by by getting up away from the desk and actually breathing deep deep into the lungs, we actually give our bodies what it actually craves so, important
2: that's amazing um before I get um to my final question, just so that we can stick with the time and you can pick up your son. Um, What? Wait a minute. Before I get to my final question, I want to say thank you um, for joining me again. um, I know you are extremely busy. You are a husband, you're a dad, you have so much um, businesses on the go and you run so many different teams all around Canada. So thank you for taking your time. Um, to share your insights, your information, um, and, and you with my listeners and with me. I truly appreciate it. Um, also, thank you for all the incredible impact that you are providing the world and you're sharing with the world. Um, it's greatly appreciated and, um, I just, I love being able to be a part of your team and connected to you because you're just a phenomenal man. So thank you so very much. Um, My final question for you is, what is your perspective on positivity?
1: Okay, so before I answer that, thank you for saying all those really nice things. Uh, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I, I really believe uh, that my calling, and I really believe it's a calling, um, is to make the world a better place somehow. Yes. I I don't know exactly how that's going to be. I don't think I'll even know until I'm either on my deathbed or somebody will look back at my life after I'm gone. Um, coaching certainly is currently my focus. And I think everything, when I look back on my life, I think everything has led me to this point, uh, for fulfilling that purpose and fulfilling that calling. Because as a coach, I help people be their best. Yeah. And as a coach of coaches, then I can help those people help other people be their best. And it's like a ripple effect that yeah. I get to be part of. Uh, I, I take it, uh. I take it very seriously, but with a light heart, meaning that I know that when because of the influence that I have and the opportunity to get in front of people, I know that i I have to be aware of what I'm saying and how I'm saying it because people are listening, and that's a that's definitely a privilege and an obligation and a responsibility that I have and i, I like I said, I take it very seriously. But with a light heart, because yep. I think we, we need to smile more and yes. to enjoy life more. And to segue over to your question about positivity, um, I think that, like I was saying before, we can really only influence and control ourselves first and foremost. And so identifying what helps us be positive first and foremost, And as the, as the saying goes, you know, fill up our cup first so that we can let it overflow and fill up other people's cups. Yeah. Uh, When, when we try to go out into the world and our cup is not full and it's maybe even kind of dry and gross at the bottom because it's all dried up and maybe there's a crack in it, then it's really tough for us to help fill up other people's cups with happiness and positivity and, certainty, and all the different things that that we all crave. So it might sound selfish to focus on oneself first. Yep. But if we don't, then all we're doing is we start running on empty. And if we're running on empty, you know, it's just kind of like if you've ever let your car fuel gauge get all the way down to like empty or he has the, the fuel monitor that says you have one kilometer yep. left
3: you know, and you're in the middle of
1: nowhere, it can be pretty yep. stressful.
3: Yes.
1: And you're probably gonna get stuck out in the middle of, of nowhere at some point. Yep. And so um my perspective on positivity is uh create, nurture, cultivate that, that positivity within ourselves first. Uh and try to do so much of that and I and I'll say we, we don't have time to get into it today, but I don't do as good a job of that as I as I should for myself, but create as much positivity in ourselves as possible, so that we have something to to give to the world. So. Wow.
2: I love that, and that goes. And I love the whole overflowing cup because that's what my my eight week course is all about is is filling your cup so full that it overflows so that what's in the cup is yours to keep and, and what's overflowing is for you to give, share, and serve others with. So I absolutely love that. Um, thank you once again so very much. Um, stay safe, Um, and we will definitely be in touch again.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Candace. I appreciate it, and thank you for everything that you're doing with this.
2: Thank you. Have an excellent day. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye.
0: Well my friends, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Rod. If you guys did, please reach out to us on Instagram. I'm at Sparkplug Wellness and he as at indestructible human and we would love to hear what you guys think please like share rate and review the positive spark plug podcast it truly does help and it's truly appreciated thank you thank you thank you so very much once again for taking the time to listen in and now it is time to go out and be positive and do something positive